I'm going to read today from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Um, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1021. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jody. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Prince Caspian, he features this uh, experience or this interaction between Lucy and Aslan that I pray will be mirrored in our experience as we journey with Jesus over the coming months in this new sermon series that we're launching into today, the little letter uh, of First John. Um, this is what happens in this interaction between Aslan and Lucy. So Lucy gazes into Aslan's large, wise face. Welcome, child. He says, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are, Lucy responded, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. This is my hope for each of us as we work our way through this letter, as we encounter the wonders of Jesus Christ. I pray that we will find that he becomes bigger and bigger to us. A bigger part of our lives, a bigger part of our thoughts, a bigger part of our motives. I pray that the, the seed of doctrine that is planted during these months will grow up into a, a warm devotional fellowship with Jesus and with his people. Doctrine and devotion. These are the two primary aims of this letter. John pairs these things really well, I think, in this letter. If, if I might say, I guess. He does pair them really well in this letter. Deep doctrine, warm devotion. The John who wrote this letter isn't John the Baptist, like some of us might think. It was John the disciple. John the man who spent basically every waking moment with Jesus for three years. He had a front row seat to the amazing life that Jesus lived during that time. John was probably Jesus' closest friend on the earth. So out of that personal experience, John wrote a gospel. We worked our way through that a few years ago, the gospel of John. And he had a very specific purpose for writing that gospel, that good news about Jesus. And he makes it explicit at the end of that gospel, John 20, you can read on screen. Uh, Jesus, it says this, Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's gospel is bent on persuading us to believe. But this little letter uh, that we call 1 John is like that gospel's complimentary companion, not compliment like your shirt looks nice today, but compliment like we fit together well. First uh, uh, John is the complimentary companion to this gospel. And just like he provides a purpose statement for writing his gospel, John also provides one for writing his letter to a church, probably the church in Ephesus. But here's what 1 John 5 says. He says, 
um, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the Gospel of John and the letter of 1 John are companion works with complementing themes. But there is a distinction. John's Gospel is bent on persuading us to believe. John's letter is bent on providing assurance of that belief. Those are the distinctions there. This is why I say they're complementing companions. First John is about helping us gain clarity on correct doctrine and assurance of belief. And as we'll find, correct doctrine is a critical piece of fueling confidence that we have true and saving belief. So if you've ever struggled with assurance of your salvation, am I really saved or not? Am I redeemed? If you've ever struggled with knowing whether or not you're truly a Christian, God included this little letter in his word just for you, just for you. So John wrote this letter in response to Christians who were bailing on the faith. They had broken away from the church and started doing their own thing. You can see this in 1 John 2. A little bit later in the letter he says, They, the people that left, went out from among us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so a contingent of people left the church. And I'm sure that this departure left the remaining members feeling confused, uh, feeling conflicted, maybe feeling a little bit vulnerable in their faith. I mean, just imagine if a large number of us were to suddenly be gone next Sunday because of some kind of doctrinal disagreement and word about that kind of filtered out through the church. You might wonder if you'd miss something important, right? You probably ask yourself, well, is, is what I believe true? How do I know if it's true or not? How can I be sure that they're wrong and not me? And if they are wrong, is it loving or is it bigotry for me to tell them that they're wrong? Which is it? So John wanted to help this little church make sense of this and give them like a gravitational center so that they would not leave the orbit of orthodoxy. He wasn't concerned about whether he was being offensive or not. He was concerned about truth. He wanted to keep his people in the orbit of orthodoxy. He would rather offend his readers into heaven than flatter them into hell. Doctrine mattered deeply to John, and it should matter the same to us. Lucas Cranach was a Reformation-era German painter. He actually knew Martin Luther personally and painted probably the most famous picture of Martin Luther. And it's actually how we know what Martin Luther's face looks like today, almost like more than 500 years later. The painting depicts uh, a large stone room. Uh, at one end, Martin Luther stands high up in a pulpit looking straight ahead with one hand resting on the Bible and the other one pointing straight ahead, much like I do to y'all. No, that's not true. Um, but at the other end of the room uh, is his congregation in Wittenberg, they are listening to Luther's preaching, and they're looking ahead. However, when I show you the middle of the painting here in a second, you'll see that they're not looking at Luther. And interestingly, Luther is not pointing at the congregation. See, in the space between Luther and the congregation stands Jesus' cross. Here's the whole thing put together. The painting demonstrates what we want to be true of preaching here at Trinity. The guy up here doing nothing more than pointing to Christ and him crucified. 
from all of Scripture. Even Proverbs, like we experienced during the month of August, Proverbs whispers about Jesus too. It's our desire that you look not to us, but to the cross. We want to hide behind the cross as you are taken in by the beauty and the wonder of Jesus himself. But I think this painting is also descriptive of the approach that John is taking here in this little letter. Remember, the church has just experienced a a good degree of turnover because some people were distorting truth about Jesus. So what does John do in response? John points to Jesus, and he says, No, let me tell you about the actual Jesus, the Jesus I heard I saw, I touched. Guys, trust me, I was there. I'm telling you, that's the Son of God, the Christ who died for the sins of mankind. And so this is the context for where John is headed today, unfolding the glorious doctrine of the Son of God, pointing us all to the real Jesus. And here's what we'll find today about that doctrine. It's like our big idea It's like the takeaway thing, hopefully something that's portable for you to make sense of these four verses. Shared doctrine is the foundation of joyful fellowship. Shared doctrine is the foundation for joyful fellowship. And you can see where I draw this from about halfway through verse 3. There's a purpose statement there. John's like, I've written all this stuff. Look at the middle of verse 3. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And then skip to the end of verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the aim of this little section is to promote fellowship and to complete joy. Promote fellowship, complete joy. John longs for the fullness of joy that only comes when others share his fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. This is like his burning passion, and I hope it becomes ours. If you look carefully, you'll see that this fellowship is horizontal, like with each other, and also vertical with the Father and the Son. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, horizontal, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, vertical. Now, the Greek term for fellowship, maybe you've heard it before. A lot of churches use it for like gatherings, koinonia, it's the Greek word for Fellowship, it means to share a common bond. That's what fellowship is. According to John, that common bond is common doctrine. Our fellowship, our common bond is common doctrine. It binds us each to each each other, and then it binds us to God. Simultaneously bound in horizontal fellowship and vertical fellowship. So vertical fellowship. To say that we have fellowship with the Father and His Son means that we are bonded by shared values. We are bonded with the Father by shared values. It means that we believe what the Father and the Son believe. It means that we love what they love. And so obviously, we delight to spend time with them because we are on the same page about everything. Fellowship with the Father and the Son. Just like with your closest friends, you include them in all that you do. Because you love having them around. That's what it's like to have fellowship with God. But it's also horizontal, right? Horizontal fellowship. Our fellowship with each other follows from or out of our fellowship with God. Right here in these first four verses, our shared doctrine should fuel joyful fellowship with one another. And I think the our joy there that you see at the end of verse four, 
that our joy may be complete. I think it's in reference to John, the apostles who spent time with Jesus, and to the church who he knew would read this letter. It's all, all, all them, all their joy. So John's aim is his joy and their joy at the same time and about the same thing, the person and work of Jesus Christ. What is complete joy, do you think? Complete joy. None of us have experienced that. Probably. Whatever it was, it was something that can only be found in knowing and believing in the truth about Jesus. Complete joy is not found in our material possessions, in your team winning, or your post going viral. Complete joy is only found in Jesus. We would like nod to that, but we don't often live like that, do we? Jesus himself acknowledged this back in John's gospel when he said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John says, complete. Listen, the better you know the doctrine and the person of Jesus, the more devoted joy you will experience. Martin Luther said, it is but the beginning of joy when we begin to believe. When faith daily increases, joy increases in proportion. I wonder if that's your story right now. Are you learning the doctrine of this book and deepening your devotion around the Savior of this book? If you've gotten in a rut or found yourself out of rhythm, maybe make yourself a note to get back with Jesus. Complete joy. One thing we learn here that seems, I think, counterintuitive for some of us as Christians is that it is not only permissible, but absolutely necessary and right to pursue our own happiness. Doesn't that sound, I'm sorry with whatever's happening. I don't know what I'm doing, but um, it seems counterintuitive for us to be encouraged to pursue our own joy. But John says we are writing this that our joy may be complete. John wanted complete joy, and he wasn't afraid to admit his motive for writing the letter. Man, guys, I just want to be happy in Jesus. I'm doing this to promote my own joy. That can sound selfish, but it's not, at least not uh, sinfully selfish. The question is, what drives that joy for John and for us? For John, it's his fellowship with the saints that he's writing to, and his fellowship with God himself. John with Jesus, John with the saints, and for John, the completion of that joy was when the saints he loved shared in the fellowship that he had. The saints that he loved shared in the fellowship that he had. It's like this triangle of joy. So try to personalize this maybe. My life in fellowship with Christ, your life in fellowship with Christ, and my life in fellowship with yours. That's what John is saying here. This is the triangle that should characterize us, church. We need all three lines of the triangle to complete our joy. Remove one of those lines, and our joy is incomplete. We've all got a part to play here. We've experienced potent threats to joyful fellowship all of our lives, but like especially in recent years, haven't we? So many causes want us to rally to them. Political, 
racial, social. But John here is pleading for us to have our primary fellowship orbit around the sound teaching about Jesus, doctrine. Whatever ideas we have about unity should find their source and their boundaries in this book, the teaching, the doctrine about Jesus. More than love for our country, more than love for our cause, more than love for our team, we should increasingly find this book to be the gravitational center of our fellowship. I wonder if it's even a part of your fellowship with the people in this church. Sometimes it's the last topic that we talk about, isn't it? What we must fight for is to ensure that our unity is around this book and its teachings about Jesus, especially the gospel. There are so many causes that are demanding our attention or, or clamoring for our attention right now. Who's, who, who are you going to side with? What is the gravitational center of your life? Like a shark circles its prey. We are going to circle around this book, Trinity, and the teaching about Jesus. Like the earth rotates around the sun, we are going to orient everything we do to this book. This is how we cultivate a joyful fellowship. If you feel politically homeless, take heart. You are feeling the tug of your heavenly citizenship. It is normal for Jesus' followers to feel like aliens and exiles in this world. Listen, it may feel like we're on the losing side right now, Christian. The media and sometimes even the government, both parties, all parties are cramming down all kinds of stuff at alarming rates. But don't be shaken, Christian. Things are not as they seem. To quote Harvey Dent, the night is always darkest just before the dawn. The undertow of this text is super victorious. John knows at the end of the day, our joy is going to be complete. That happens in the next world, not in this one, but it's still a promise. The carrot in front of us, complete joy is coming. John's godly swagger is awesome. He's confident that there will be a joyful future church because he knew Jesus personally. He's pointing at him. He observed Jesus dying violently, but he also saw with his own eyes Jesus rise victoriously. John knows. He knows it, and he wants the Spirit to stir this confidence up in us this morning by looking at the resurrected Christ. So as the world continues to drift further and further from this book, don't be surprised. They are. But don't be doubtful either. They aren't the center of gravity for you. God's word is the sun of our universe and the center of our fellowship. Stay in orbit, church. Well, if all that is true, that our shared doctrine is the foundation for our shared unity, our fellowship, then what is the nub of our shared doctrine? This is what John is seeking to clarify for these people. There are two shared points of doctrine that must be the center of our unity. It's Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity. I've been up here for a while, and I'm just now getting to point one. So take that for what you will. Um, let's roll. The first shared piece of doctrine that is foundational for fellowship is the doctrine of Jesus' divinity. Jesus was, Jesus is truly 
God of God. This is something we must agree on to enjoy and promote complete joy and true fellowship. John emphasizes Jesus' divinity in a number of ways. First, he says that Jesus is the word of life in verse 1. Notice that Christ is simply called the life there in verse 1, and then the word of life in verse 2. Now, if there's any doubt of who or what John is referring to, I think John dispels it later in the letter. Uh, look at 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. There is no other being that can offer this kind of quality of life, eternal life. No one else offers that to you. Obviously, mothers can offer their children physical life as they grow in the womb and as they nurture them early in life. They are the life source for that child. But all moms eventually waste away, unable to provide for their children as they once were. There is no person in the world who can offer you an eternal life source, who can nurture you your eternal life and then keep on nurturing it forever and ever and ever. Nobody has that capability. That is only Jesus, which makes him God. Think about this. God is never going to get tired of keeping you. He's promised to uphold you forever. One millisecond of him shrugging off this promise and we'd all be toast. But he loves us, and he is for us, and he sustains us even through death. He doesn't waste away. His ability to provide life never goes obsolete. This makes him eternal, which is what John says next. Jesus is the eternal life, in verse 2. This means that Jesus existed before he historically manifested. Jesus existed before he historically manifested in human form. Oftentimes around here, we'll say something like, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. I've got a thousand books on my shelf right now about the Bible, but none of them are better at explaining the Bible than the Bible itself. I think that's the case right here. A phrase in verse 1 unpacks what this phrase in verse 2 means. Verse 1 explains what Jesus, the eternal life, means. Look at verse 1. It says, that which was from the beginning. This is John's way of saying Jesus has always been there, the eternal life. And I think that it's the next phrase that confirms that Jesus was with the Father. You can see that in verse 2 as well. I'm going to get strong next this morning, looking at me and then looking back down at your text. Just compare what I say to what it says. And then maybe you hear echoes of John's first book, John's Gospel. John 1, 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So those two underlined phrases that you see there are phrases that you find in both John 1, 1 and 2 and 1 John 1, 1 and 2. Those phrases are those ideas. Lots of overlap here at the beginning of both of these two works by, by John. And here John is saying that God the Father has always been, and so is Jesus. From the beginning means Christ, our life, was there when creation began. And even before, because he was with the Father. He is eternal. John 1.3 speaks of Jesus when it says, All things were made through him. And without him, there would be nothing made that is made. You're made. I'm made. 
So if there was no Jesus, there would be no us. That's why we sang a phrase like this morning when we sung, it's your breath in our lungs. It's a poetic way of saying, no Jesus, no us. Here's the logical implication of that. And you kind of have to sit with it for a second to get your mind wrapped around it. I'm going to put it on screen so you can sort of follow the logic of it. But it's this. Jesus, God, is the only unmade thing in the universe. No one made God. He has always been. The Word, the Son, the life. Jesus made everything in the category of made. There's no way the Son is made because he wouldn't have been there to make himself. Hopefully that's as clear or slightly clearer than mud. All life comes from Jesus. So a fundamental assertion of this text is that Christ our life has eternally existed with the Father, which makes him God. And in order for us to experience true fellowship and joy, we'll need to orbit around this fundamental reality. Jesus is God. This is clearly a troubling idea to our still kind of religious society when they want to be. Even still, like especially in the South, uh, prayers are prayed before sporting events or like in other public settings, before concerts or something. Probably not before concerts, but maybe before uh, uh, sporting events, before races in NASCAR. But somewhere deep in the recesses of that arena, someone instructs the person who's going to publicly pray for that event to keep that prayer really benign, keep it really broad. Talking about God is totally fine in our society still. Referring to Jesus is not. Jesus is the dividing line. Jesus Christ is definitive in our day, and we must not lose sight of the doctrine of his divinity. Let's not surrender this to our culture. Let's stay warm by the fires of its truth. Jesus Christ is God of God. The implications of Jesus' divinity are pretty staggering. Only an infinite and sinless person could take on the infinite punishment that our sins deserve. If Jesus is not God, he cannot save us. Church, it is only God himself who could shoulder the weight of the sins of the world. You take away Jesus' divinity, we're in trouble. Forever kind of trouble. Look, if Jesus was just a good dude with a sharp ethic and a golden tongue, which is what most of the world wants to tell us. If that's true, that'd be nice, but it couldn't really do anything for us ultimately. But because Jesus is God, we have legitimate hope that our sins are paid for and our lives redeemed. The doctrine of Jesus' deity is fundamental to our fellowship and it's essential to our joy. But it's not only Jesus' deity that provides the centrifugal force for our fellowship. It's also the doctrine of Jesus' humanity. The doctrine of Jesus' humanity. John takes pains to make this clear, repeating himself in verse 2. You can see he says, the life was made manifest, and then the eternal life was made manifest to us. Jesus' coming manifested God to us, meaning that we could see God, we could hear God, we could touch him. It is this mind-blowing reality of Christianity that we probably too often get used to. Being a Christian means that you must believe that Jesus was truly God and fully man. 
I think some of the folks who had, were leaving the church here in Ephesus that John is writing to must have been really struggling with the idea of Jesus' humanity. Some were teaching that God never really took on flesh. So to address this confusion, John writes these unmistakable, clarifying statements for the church. In verse 1, you can see, he's like, look, I don't care what they say. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. He has personally seen and heard and touched this man. He's an eyewitness. The difference between like an airtight and a flimsy legal case against someone accused of murder, the difference is an eyewitness, right? If the prosecuting attorney can find an eyewitness who can attest to the accusation, who saw it, well then, case closed. That's what John is claiming here. Later in the letter, he's still pounding the same drum. 1 John 4, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. Case closed. Eyewitness. But now listen. Just as Jesus can only save us if he is fully divine, so he can only save us if he is fully human. Only a human can stand in the place of another human, taking the punishment that we deserve. Only a member of the human race could undo the curse that the human first Adam brought on us. Look at Romans 5. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's us. So by the one man's, that's Jesus, obedience, the many will be made righteous, also us. Adam was a man. So is Jesus. The Bible is explicit about this from beginning to end. Jesus' humanity matters, and it is foundational to our salvation. Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews is just saying, Jesus was a man. He's like us. Only one who knew the frailty and weakness of being a man could be a sympathetic and legit priest for us. Now, we won't admit it, but some of us are stifling yawns right now. You know it's true in your head right now. Now, all of you, I say the word yawn, and you're really trying hard not to yawn. I feel like yawning after saying the word yawn, and I'm up here. Um, Maybe you think that, like, processing through intricate layers of doctrine is merely, like, an academic matter. It's for the experts. It doesn't matter if we study truth as long as we feel devotional toward the Lord on Sundays. Especially on Sundays. You would take devotion over doctrine any day of the week. But you can't get one without the other. Remove doctrine and your devotion is hollow. It means nothing. Remove devotion and your doctrine is cold. It means nothing. Now maybe others, others of us feel like Doctrine is too divisive for our day. It's an unnecessary roadblock to unity. But John is here to say that doctrine is not a roadblock, but the fundamental building block of true unity. Here's another implication to consider about Jesus' God-manness. And this is not original with me. It's from John Piper. He calls the incarnation that Jesus came as a man took on flesh, he calls it a stumbling block to true faith for many. I wonder if it's been a stumbling block to some of us. If the doctrine of Jesus being fully God and fully man is true, then 
Here's what he says. Every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And his work and his word claim a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When God becomes man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this man, the man Christ Jesus, becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the religious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's totalitarian. It's authoritarian. Imperialism. Absolutism. Who does Jesus think he is? I'll tell you who. He's God. Reject this Jewish God-man to the peril of your own soul, church. Now this sounds like a threat. And it kind of is to some degree, but it's also an invitation to a well of complete joy that will satisfy your soul like nothing else. Come to Jesus. Doctrine matters in real life for all of eternity. So when John wants to cultivate fellowship within a group of people, when he wants to cultivate fellowship, what does he do? He writes a letter filled with doctrine, and we're going to see that week in and week out. In other words, to water down our doctrine would be to hamstring our fellowship. To de-emphasize doctrine is to cool our devotion. So as we wrap up here, I'd like for us to notice that the individuals in Luther's congregation have a story to tell. If you look at them carefully, there's something interesting. Not all the faces are looking at the cross. There are a few people who are looking deliberately away. Luther's preaching turns the eyes of most of the people in the room to Christ. But there are a few who are distracted and looking away. Maybe they're too convicted by Luther's preaching. Maybe they are convicted by Luther's preaching but fail to look to the cross for grace. Instead, they look away trying to find something else to distract from their guilt. One lady seems oblivious, if you can find her, as to what's even going on. Apparently more interested in looking out of the painting at us rather than looking to the cross. She is missing the glory that is happening right before her. Christ crucified. Maybe she's at church to see and be seen rather than hear God's word of grace in the gospel. Listen, I don't know what motivated you to be here today. But can I call all of us to fix our gaze, if only for a moment, but hopefully for all of life, on the crucified Christ who really was God, who really was man, and who really suffered violently in our place to redeem us from certain destruction. If you are not a Christian today, look to Christ and his cross to be saved. If you don't know what that means or what that looks like, man, track me down afterwards. It would be a pleasure to speak with you about that. If you are a Christian today, keep looking to Christ and his cross. And we're going to keep pointing to him. As we all continue to do this, our fellowship with Jesus and his Father will sweeten and deepen 
And so are our fellowship with one another. May the thing that draws us together more than anything else be the life-giving doctrine of the God-man, King Jesus. May we become like Lucy, who the longer she gazed at the lion, the bigger he became. May our doctrine deepen and our devotion strengthen as we study Jesus together in this letter. Trevor is going to come pray for us now as we think about and process through and pray through how we can apply uh, this particular lesson in the coming lessons in the coming weeks. We want joy, and we know that true joy is found only in you. And we just pray that you would help us to get to know you better, help us to um, develop, to deepen our relationship with you and with each other in you, and just to study your word, help us to know who you are, to not be afraid of, of doctrine and of hard things, but just to study your word, to find, to find out the truth about who you are so that we can know the true you. Help us to spur each other on as well, to um, get to know you. Help us to circle around the truth, um, and only there we can find true joy. Amen.